Tōkatu Ake EQC is introducing an independent dispute resolution scheme. This is with the hope to make the process easier to navigate for homeowners after a natural disaster. It's one of the recommendations from the public inquiry in 2020, which found EQC was poorly prepared for the Canterbury earthquakes. But not everyone is convinced reinventing the wheel is the way forward. Ali Jones has worked alongside Canterbury insurance claimants for a decade and says there's so much experience already at the New Zealand Claims Resolution Service. Public consultation is open on this until March the 6th. The new scheme would be available from July. To discuss this with us, Dean Lester, insurance claims preparer, who has been in the industry for more than 35 years. Kia ora, Dean. Kia ora, Susanna. What are the pros and cons here, Dean? Did the, did the wheel, as someone said, need to be reinvented? It's hard to understand as to why the costs of re-establishing the wheel were wanted to be engaged with. I questioned EQC on that when I was invited to submit, which I welcome because I've been working with EQC for all of the Christchurch earthquake period since the 4th of September 2010 and wrote to them and said, can you just help me understand as to what was wrong with NZCRS and what you identified as being the issues and the defects that you needed to address? The outcome of that was that I got an OIA advice this morning to say, we'll come back to you on the 7th of March with questions to, with answers to your questions. And as you say, submissions close on, on the, the 6th. 6th of March. So we start to see matters appearing again that a part of the confusion, the frustration and the annoyance was in the inquiry. And one wonders, lessons learned from Christchurch, is it just a throwaway line that for some reason Minister Seymour is endorsing for some reason? So what do you understand about the parts of the process that will be improved or you really don't know? I can't see how the process will be improved from the information that's been provided to me. They talk about being more efficient and their commitment to um, to whānau and to repairing whare. Well, at the moment, they're tomorrow one year after the events up north. And as, as yet, they haven't completed all of their land assessments. So they're hardly more efficient. So one is concerned that they haven't learnt much from Christchurch. The other concern about this, it looks like the shark building the shark cage because if UQC aren't happy with the decision, they can then go to the courts. Well, that's not helpful because if we look at the lessons from Christchurch with relation to the courts, since the 4th of September 2010, 1,120 court cases have included the word earthquake, 238 court cases have included EQC, and if one goes to the court list for earthquake claims, there's 128 pages. So it's a concern that Minister Seymour the EQC minister who wants to cut costs, be more efficient for people to make their own decisions is essentially endorsing a process that leads back to the courts who are still hearing 2010 and 2011 cases. Let's bring our panellists in. Sue, what are your thoughts? Do you have a question for Dean? Um, this is not not an area where I know much at all, but it, it, I always wonder with when people when organisations bring in new appeals processes, whether it's a way of them establishing more power and control. Um, for example, MSD and ACC and places like that are really good 
at it, um, using appeals processes to actually reinforce their own power in the situation, and as you say, making it harder and harder for ordinary people to get any um, to get any decent um, judgment or any decent hearing, um, short of having to go through the courts. So I'm very suspicious about what's going on here. And so, Kira, for you, and that, that's your comment holds validity because at the moment we are 10 years down the track. We have a range of experts who understand insurance, that NZCRS has an efficient system as one example. The insurance tribunal is another way that justice is efficiently and easily found. That by the point that ETC gets a dispute, they've spent tens of thousands on their experts and the poor homeowner is left miles behind having to incur costs to try and meet them face-to-face. In a process at the end, EQC may go, oh, we don't like it, we'll go to court. And the other thing that is in the document, if EQC behaves badly, then the whole process just is biffed out and doesn't take place at all. So hardly holding them to account. In fact, the opposite, and so it's all going in the wrong, going in the wrong direction, which is awful for for all the people that are affected and are still affected. Now. So many years on, Dean Hall, do you have a question? For I do. Dean so, um, public consultations open till the sixth of March. Dean, did you have any advice for something people could summarise in their submissions that would help with this process that they could that they could say something that would make it more efficient that you could think of? I think the key thing that gets lost in this is that. A natural disaster is of such significance that that, that Farno and family are out of their homes mm-hmm. and that this has a massive effect on mental health and general well-being. That insurance also has a massive positive effect for the country, which one would expect that Minister Seymour would be very keen to support because in the event of a large natural disaster, millions and millions of dollars come into the country by way of reinsurance. And a more efficient process to have that money come in to support homeowners to recover is a benefit to all. So one would think the need to be efficient and to not reinvent wheels into what could become rectangles would be a positive progress. Dean Lester, you, you've, been in, you've been in the insurance industry for more than 35 years, so that's that's a decent length of time, isn't it? What do you want this external scheme to bring in? The basis of the presentation is that there are lessons learnt from Christchurch. Otatahi Christchurch has delivered insurance lessons in their thousands by way of court decisions and good process that includes the Earthquake Insurance Tribunal and includes the establishment of NZCRS. To re-establish with an organisation that has no insurance expertise, that will have to train experts and then try and deliver when people are out of their homes is really frustrating. So the message that people could provide is that this is the authority. This is where they live and that they need good, efficient responses. Having a process that at the end of the day, EQC can go, no, we don't like the decision will now go to court, helps no one have faith in the process or indeed want to see it through. They could end up in the court system and then be exposed to the justice challenge of David and Goliath. Good talking with you today, Dean. Thank you. Bye-bye.
Dean Lester there, Insurance Claims Preparer, based in Ototahi Christchurch. It's coming up to, what is that, 17 minutes to five. Let's have a bit of feedback here. White chocolate isn't chocolate, period, exclamation mark. Wellingtonians go for dark because we have Whitakers support local. Eventually, with climate change, we will be able to grow cocoa here. Graham, thank you for that text. You pretty much summed it all up. Thanks, Sue. Another texter for continuing to be a voice for those who can't be heard. And then another text that just says, Dairy milk or totahi. Righto. Love it. Directly getting to the point. Cost cutting in government departments is underway to save 6.5 to 7.5% annually. And the union representing public service workers is worried women will bear the brunt of the changes. Public Service Association Assistant Secretary Fleur Fitzsimon says the history of public sector cuts in New Zealand is that women suffer disproportionately. Joining us now, Fleur Fitzsimons. Tēnā koe, Fleur. Uh, kia ora. Kia ora. What is the PSA seeing with the request from Finance Minister Nicola Willis for government agencies to cut their costs? Well, we're really concerned that the Minister has issued a directive for government agencies to cut either 6.5 or 7.5 of their baseline budgets. And what we know is that when cuts like that are made, they will disproportionately impact women. And there has been no accompanying gender audit of these cuts to public services or actually to the tax cuts that they're going to be funding. So we're calling on the government to take an approach that looks at the impact on everybody from these tax cuts and particularly the impact on women. Now, there's a reference when we hear um, these cuts being requested at that contractors and this reference, back office staffers. What does back office actually mean when we're talking about the public service? Well, we think it's quite a misleading term, actually, because people that work throughout the public service contribute to the important work that frontline workers like social workers and customs officers, biosecurity officers, they, they really contribute to the work that those staff do. So it's quite misleading to talk about um, back office as if there's somebody working in a back office getting paid lots of money that doesn't contribute. That's not the reality of public services in New Zealand in 2024. Now, I understand 39 chief executives of government departments have been told to tighten their belts and they're about to present their plans to Nicola Willis, Finance Minister, about now. Do you have any understanding of the timing for when these plans are being delivered? Yeah, we're waiting to see what the impact will be. But obviously public servants are very anxious about these blunt cuts which will be imposed. And I see the Minister today saying that she really hopes that it won't disproportionately affect women and won't impact on the progress that we've made with the gender pay gap. But our experience is that hope alone is not enough. You actually need to see a government that's committed to sitting down, working with unions and really understanding what's driving that gender pay gap and and actually then funding the necessary increases in women's pay to address it. And we're not seeing those kind of commitments from the government. Dean, what do you make of this? Any questions for Fleur? I think um, uh, maybe, Fleur, you could provide some advice on this problem I have. So when I try and explain this problem, the gender pay gap problem to people. So we have this problem in my industry, even at my own studio, in terms of getting, uh, say, women and and other people other than just, you know, teenage boys who like video games um, making games. Uh, how do we do that? It's such a complex problem in terms of, 
um, setting an environment up where a woman can re-engage in the workforce and stuff like that. And I, I, I don't know if you had any advice on how to explain to people who say there is no pay gap and, and stuff like that. Because I, I, I feel like some people just close their ears to the topic because they, they say, well, I don't pay men and women differently. But personally, I feel like the, the data is more complicated. The data paints that picture. So did you have any advice on how to open people's ears? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And even asking that question, it's a great starting point. But the reality is statistics don't lie. Mm -hmm. The gender pay gap in the overall economy is about 8.6%. And we know that's made up from a number of factors like not valuing the work that's largely performed by women and women being concentrated in low-paid occupations. And the other thing sitting alongside this is the uneven spread of that unpaid caring or domestic work But you've also touched on something as well, which is that sometimes it's just flat-out discrimination and bias. Mm. I've got a texter in, uh, Fleur. What percentage of of the public service is women? Yeah, it's actually quite a high percent. It's around 55% of the public service is women. And what we also know is that they are concentrated in the lower-paid groups within the public service. So the clerical and administrative work, for example, which is one of those areas where... There's a concentration of women in low-paid occupations or caring work, which has traditionally been known as women's work and therefore undervalued and underpaid. So over to you. Do you think women will be disproportionately impacted by these cuts on government departments? It certainly sounds likely the way the government's talking, and, and Fleur is obviously close to it. And I would note that there'll be an even bigger um incomes gap um, if a disproportionate number of women are actually laid off out of the public service. And Mm. somehow the government conveys this idea that, okay, if you're unemployed, you can go out and pick fruit or you can um, go and work in construction. Uh, Many of the women and men in the public service are not actually cut out for those jobs. Um, You know, people can't simply shift from one part of the economy or one type of job to another. Um, and, and that those gaps become even worse. I, I do wonder, Flora, is there any consultation going on with the union at all? Yeah, look, we have um, had some consultation, but what we know is that this government has tax cuts which it needs to fund and it is relying on blunt instruments of cutting public services. And the impact of that will go further than what you've rightly outlined, which is the impact on women workers who may lose their jobs. But what we also know is that more women rely on public services, for example, early childhood education or even public transport, both of which are facing cuts, which will result in increased costs that women will disproportionately bear the brunt of. So women are getting it from all angles. Thank you very much for your time today, Fleur. It's Fleur Fitzsimons there, Public Service Association Assistant Secretary. It is 10 minutes to five. Just a little bit of feedback before we go to our next guest. White, woot woot, a heretic from Wellington. Isn't that a sweet little text? Here I know. We go. And uh, give a big thank you to Sue for her comments about unemployment. No one can know the devastation of unemployment till, until they experience it. So many people are full of hubris and think it could never happen to them. Cure to that person. And it's so then, true. So true. And then Gary Milne from Christchurch says, I really struggled with maths at high school. 2% for school certificate. 25 years later, I got school certificate maths as an adult day student at a local high school. Oh, awesome. A2 pass, approximately 89%. And I love this bit. Thanks, Gary. I enjoyed it. 
Oh, what lovely text. I know we've got a conversation of very serious topics with chocolate Mm. and scooters and everything woven in there, but I'm appreciating that everyone's staying in the flow. And at this point, it seems to me that dark chocolate chocolate is still, yes, control room is thumbs up, dark chocolate is still leading the way, but there are still some shout-outs to white, even though some people aren't referring to that as chocolate It's not technically chocolate. I believe officially that's true. Okay, so we accept that. Mm-hmm. Right, okay, right. We'll move right along because this is where we're up to. Let's go to our cocoa chocolate expert. Cocoa prices have hit a record high as a result of dry weather in West Africa. The BBC is reporting that the cost of cocoa has doubled since the start of last year. What could it mean for chocolate lovers? Sarah Gardner is the owner of Devonport Chocolates. We're also going to get her expert opinion on whether milk chocolate is better than dark chocolate (laughs) and also a take on white chocolate, if you don't mind, Sarah. Cocoa prices, (laughs) welcome to the panel. Thanks, Susanna. (laughs) Cocoa prices at a record high. How are you affected? Oh, I think like every chocolate business in New Zealand, we are impacted. It has meant that we have had to look at what we're making and also obviously we are looking at how those prices will impact us and our customers. So can you define or do you have a sense of how many chocolate chocolatiers, chocolate makers there are in New Zealand? That's a really good question. I don't. Look, I know that it's a real, it was a real growth area over the COVID period particularly because we all wanted to eat chocolate during COVID. So we saw a whole lot of really wonderful new Everyone's laughing here. if you can hear that sort of collective snorting going on. That is what's happening in the studio, collective laughing. Well, we all did that. Um, so we saw a real growth in the industry. And also with things like uh, plant-based eating and things like that, we've seen some really beautiful boutique chocolatiers appear and starting to produce this beautiful chocolate. So I think the impact will be wide. And when it comes to making the decision to put your prices up, how does that part work for you? So for us, there's a lot that goes into that. Obviously, um, primarily it is about our customers and we sell a very um, high quality product and we are very um, keen to continue using a fair trade chocolate and cacao beans. So all of those come into play when we're making the decision. And also, as a business, we're making decisions um, for our ability to have staff and have um, a business that's sustainable. Now, of course, we've caught you at a busy time, tomorrow being (laughs) Valentine's Day. Are you doing anything special? There's a lot of love in our world, Susan. <laughs> Good we've to hear. Loved, yeah, we've been really enjoying people coming in today in a panic trying to buy things. So we have, we've got some really beautiful things. So we've got popping candy hearts that sort of remind you a bit of champagne. And we've got passion fruit and plum caramel hearts. We've got a truffle slice, which is a chocolate bar that you can sort of slice up and have pieces of. Are you trying to torture us? Are you trying to torture us? Are you salivating? Well, yes, and there's some grimacing faces in here too. But no, no, (laughs) I don't want to ruin it for you. Yeah, we've got all that wonderful stuff happening. But we're actually now preparing for Easter. So we all go in our factory making some beautiful Easter products as well. Let's give you our panel poll, our very scientific panel poll <laughs> results. 77% of people who texted in are dark chocolate lovers. Uh, there were more people hating on white chocolate than in support of it. Oh. I'm sorry, Dean, because our panelists <laughs> I knew, I knew. confessed. Is it chocolate? 
So I think what we see is that we have a big following for our milk chocolate. I think dark is a really specific taste. So some people don't like it because it can feel a bit bitter, but some people love it because it has an intensity of flavour. What we notice is a real difference between Auckland and Wellington, because we have a store in Wellington and two in Auckland. Oh, Our Wellington clients like dark. Refined. Our Auckland clients refined like milk. Refined, very refined. And then we have our lovely people that enjoy white. And so, because I cut you off with my surprise, so Wellingtonians are refined with their dark chocolate choice. And what do you see for people in Auckland with your Auckland store? Auckland, we're all about milk. Oh. And what do you put that down to? Look, I don't know. It is interesting. I think um, Wellington, our clientele in Wellington, I think they like a really refined coffee. They like um, a very special treat. In Auckland, we're really well established. So people have been coming to us since we they were We don't have a child. anything to prove. Is that what you're saying? Well, it's because everybody's been coming since they were babies. So they came in with their grandparents because we've been around for 30 years. So they're used to having their milk chocolate and it's nostalgic for them, a real experience like that for them. So any questions for Sarah? Any chocolate questions, Dean or so? Oh, I just wish you had a few more of your shops around the place, perhaps. <laughs> I suddenly remembered I actually went to your shop in Wellington a while back, I think it was, and, oh, they were very good chocolates. <laughs> oh, good, so I'm really pleased. Make sure you go again. <laughs> and, Dean, you're not feeling miffed that you're in the minority, or at least... Not at all. I love chocolate. Got um, it. Now, and that, that comes into my question. This is going to sound like a joke question, but I assure you it's not. How do you avoid, Sarah, eating all the chocolate? Oh, no, Dean, I do. But Constantly. see, I, you say that, but if I worked it, you would have to fire me because I'd eat all the chocolate. <laughs> I eat so much chocolate, sometimes I get sick. Oh, oh. but Dean, I have it for breakfast. So I, <laughs> you and I would get on really Got well. It. I'm going to have so to go in there and like try this out. Tiramisu oh, tiramisu chocolate, you're kidding. Yeah, for the breakfast. Oh, delicious with the coffee. Amazing. But it sounds to me like, Sarah, you don't suffer from any guilt or shame around your love of chocolate, and that part sounds to be key in this relationship. Absolutely. And I think if you have that sort of relationship where you go, I'm going to have something that's really delicious, not I'm going to have 25,000 bars, then you're having a lovely relationship with chocolate. And we have a really beautiful product, so I'm really happy just to have one. Perfect. Just one. Cure it to well, all New Zealand chocolate makers. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> For sure. Oh, thank you very much. That's really a lot of fun, Sarah. Wishing you well with Valentine's Day and obviously your preparations for Easter right around the corner. Yeah, thank you. We're really excited about it. Easter's a really fun time for us, so we're looking forward to people enjoying it. Thank you. Sarah Gardner there, owner of Devonport Chocolates. Are you surprised by the results? You've spent time in Wellington. Refined, is that a word that you'd use, Sue? Uh, it's another world down there. I don't know if refined is quite the word, but <laughs> wealthy. wealthy. It's like another world if you walk down Lempton Quay. But it also speaks to walking culture too, doesn't it, that you're going to be walking places and therefore possibly making choices? I don't know. I'm not trying to justify anything. Having, having the money to buy this kind of thing also. In many parts of the country, people just can't afford to buy this level of chocolates, beautiful though they are. Good point. Dean? Um, I, I wonder whether the subtext was Wellington refined, Auckland not refined, but I don't know whether I was the only one who made that uh, who made that conclusion. And I, as a as an import Aucklander, I'll take it. I'll take it.
Go on, especially since you're from the mainland. And we already did have a text about not using this reference to not being something or being a non. Got it. I know. Mm. So that's a conversation for another time. Great to have your company, Sue Bradford, Dean Hall. Kakite anō. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.